we still operate for, let's say, 80% of the time on our intuitions, on the way we have learned to perceive the world. So it's not really actual reality. It's how we, how we imagine the reality to be. And if I am able to misdirect you a little bit, like the magician would do on stage, I am actually moving you away from my target. Welcome back to the live drop. My guest is Ilya Umansky. He's a sought-after security consultant based in Hong Kong. His company, Sphere State, is the only consultancy with expertise in the application of psychological concepts, human-centric design for assessment of controls and protection of assets, including people, reputation, information, and environments. Well, I wanted to talk to someone about corporate security, spycraft, and counter-espionage that goes into other than governmental operations and the protection of intellectual property. What I got was something I hadn't expected, a nuanced discussion of the theory and application of security in our lives with terms like digital pause, shoulder surfing, video analytics, and my favorite, fundamental aspiration. Ilya and I talked a bit about the psychology and history of security, then veered into current events and ways to process the deluge of information available today. This was recorded in mid-March of 2020, just as the world was becoming aware of the surge of coronavirus cases. Two weeks later, it already seems like the before times. Begin transmission now. First common objective is to protect people. In some cases, it is protecting the entire workforce or certain subsets of of the workforce. In some cases, uh, organizations would be a little bit more focused on protection of executives and people who are in the decision-making capacity. Uh, It really depends on the industry, the type of organization, and the type of culture that exists in an organization. I've just always been curious about the differences between nation-state intelligence and counterintelligence and uh, corporate. Well, today... It's kind of the game is is changing rapidly because access to information is not only the domain of the governments anymore. Obviously, as you can tell from the Jeff Bezos case and various others, information is obtainable, at least, without having to rely on government resources. And so I guess, again, the, the protection goes back to what are the crown jewels in a lot of cases that talk of the town today is information, but information doesn't rest in, in one domain, as, as I'm sure you, you know. And uh, information exists in our brain and in our mind as, as we exchange it verbally. Uh, information can, can be on a piece of paper and uh, somebody at a conference is taking notes and you could shoulder surf and pick up a lot of this stuff that they're thinking about or the, the notes they're taking. That happens quite a bit. And that information, of course, exists in, in the digital domain, data, uh, the ones and zeros that flow through networks, computers. And the... Enterprise security uh, today is concerned with protection of information along with the multitude of other assets. Uh, But the question is, um, how valuable is information to your organization? And it's very difficult to just say all information is the same because it's, that would be a foolish thing to, to do because then you would never be able to protect everything. So then organizations are grappling with this question, okay, how do we define what is sensitive and very important information. For example, think of the Coca-Cola formula, which has been subject to various attempts of compromise. And without, with that information out in the open, 
the business would have significant losses. And in some cases, the businesses can simply fold um, just because it's no longer viable for them to exist once they lose information. Information could also lead to significant reputational damage. And so this is where you have to understand, okay, so what happened in the case of Jeff, Jeff Bezos? And not only is it reputationally damaging to Amazon, but also to him. And you have a lot of the same issues for enterprises, and uh, they're grappling with this with this question all the time. The only difference today is that, uh, whereas very sophisticated tools used to be in the domain of the government only, that's no longer the case. You mentioned like the recipe for Coca-Cola or something right. like that. Now, I remember years ago, there was RC Cola. There were different types of cola that were trying to imitate it. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be quite as many. Is there uh, something significant about that? Is it, did they like increase the protection of their, of their intellectual property at some point? Well, I think if you look at it slightly more broadly, businesses like Coke, Pepsi, have been on acquisition sprees. And sometimes that's another tool that a lot of businesses use is they will acquire a competing business, not for purposes of learning from it, but for purposes of taking it, taking it under and uh, basically usurping whatever information, whatever assets might be of use, but not keeping the brand. And over the years, um, through a variety of methods, businesses have been able to both apply litigation, apply hostile takeover tactics, and uh, also basically go after their competition, uh, both in legal and let's call them gray ways, and sometimes completely illegal ways, uh, to tamp down on uh, on competitors. This exists today. It uh, likely, as long as we have the commercial and capitalist world will exist for years to come. Um, it just will take different forms. Technology aids today far more significantly than it did, let's say, in the 90s. And uh, whereas uh, you, you still have to rely quite a bit on uh, physical human effort uh, to compromise businesses today, technology makes it far easier to both compromise and also exfiltrate information. Exfiltrate information. You have some great phrases here too. Shoulder, I hadn't heard of shoulder surf. It's both interestingly a phrase that's quite, I, I want to say, social, uh, but at the same time, it does have this meaning for uh, people who are in charge of protecting assets. And that's something that uh, has to be taught and understood in the early days of uh, someone's career that it's, it's a very trivial exercise, but you can learn sometimes far more information from doing, from doing such an exercise, let's say against your adversary, against your target, than if you were to spend months and years trying to get into their enterprise. So um, it, it still is a very viable tactic. And on, it's fair to say on your, your, your website and your consulting, there seems to be an emphasis on identifying assets and what your assets are. And you're also talking, you also just mentioned Target, which sounds like a little bit more of an off, offensive operation. Could you maybe tell me how, are, are there, like for, for example, I played a bodyguard for a while on a television show. And one of the things that was frustrating about it is that it was inherently, I mean, just narratively, it was inherently passive. We had to wait for someone to do something or wait for there to be a threat or to find a threat and then kind of take actions against it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you balance both the offensive and uh, defensive aspects of 
of your service? Well, uh, let me address the first part of your question. Uh, and I like that you're asking it in this format because um, it's really important to understand that if you don't understand what your assets are and what magnitude, uh, what impact uh, a loss could have on any one of those assets, let's call them crown jewels because people understand this from this phrase well, right? You can't really effectively protect, be it proactively or reactively. Even if you were, uh, let's say, uh, you know, let's use your word, you said bodyguard, right? The bodyguard's job is not just to wait till something occurs. If they understand well what asset they're protecting, in that case, it would be a principal, it would be a, a, a significant person, let's call them a VIP, or a family where VIP, of a VIP, including that individual, they would inherently have to think about two two things. Okay, so what is the asset? And they would have to define for themselves very well what what it means uh, for this. For, you know, what, what's the significance of this asset? Do, do they have, let's say, if they, if they were to be taken out of the picture, let's say, disabled, injured, uh, not able to perform their their function, what kind of uh, stress would it put, let's say, on their family, on their organ, or on organizations that they're part of, and they would be building protective measures that are very preventative. So they are addressing the problems that may arise, what in a way that that would be called upstream. So, so instead of waiting for something to happen, they are trying to mitigate problems before they occur. That then results in the type of the choice of vehicles that bodyguards select for their target for, for, for their protectees. It also reflects the type of preparation that goes into every protection detail. And then there's this reactive component that you mentioned. And I used to be of the opinion that, well, the bodyguards are simply sitting and waiting for something to occur, having very good skills to react, but then I worked with some. And uh, they certainly straightened me out, if you will. Um, and uh, I very much respect the discipline because it's one of the few that actually has to be ever so proactive, ever so mindful of, of things to come. And of course, being capable of reacting to an incident and to a threat. But their goal, their objective is typically to not have anything occur. And this is a very interesting parallel with the rest of our profession. If you're in charge of protecting assets, one of the most fundamental objectives is for the business to not even uh, to not identify any deviations from their normal course of operation through your efforts. So your efforts are dedicated to addressing problems before they can affect the business or before they can affect what we would call then target. Okay, so an organization could be a target, but also an individual or a group of individuals could be a target, right? And so the job of be it you know close protection personnel or people in let's say corporate security function, uh, asset protection function, is to think: okay, how can I reduce the volume and the significance and the intensity of things to come? How can I either reduce it or eliminate it? And at the same time, how can I be prepared to respond so that the impact is minimal and the recovery is very fast? So that you're constantly, as a practitioner, moving across those three 
I guess, assignments, those three tasks. They're extremely... What are those three tasks again? So first would be proactive, thinking ahead of the problem, okay, and trying to minimize it or or remove it completely. Second would be reactive, meaning that you are now facing a threat. It's it's real, it's material, it's happening, uh, and you have to respond. And then the third would be recovery. Because a lot of people sometimes don't bring recovery into this picture, but I think it's extremely important. We learn, we become better once we're able to understand how do, how do we recover, what happened, how do we learn, how do we not make the same mistakes. And uh, it's, it's a very fundamental principle. It doesn't just apply to uh, asset protection, but it is extremely important for our industry. I think it's interesting how you... I mean, you've broken down people, assets, and processes. There aren't just there aren't just assets. There's there's other aspects of of protecting it. There's I mean, you've worked with individuals, you've worked with corporations in different sizes. Do you have any examples of where of where maybe the processes themselves were intransient, maybe due to the culture of a company where people didn't realize that what they were doing was actually putting their assets in in jeopardy or in danger? Uh, Yes, uh, but I have to offer a caveat. Uh, For for years, our industry has worked with a sense that what we say must be uh, adhered to. There was this friction between our cadre, our, my colleagues uh, and peers, and the rest of the organization that we might be working for. Whereas we're constantly lamenting about the fact that, oh, how come they're not listening to us? How come they're not moving in the direction that we need? We're trying to protect them, and here they are violating every rule in the book. Now, with that caveat, I must say that we've been slowly but moving in the right direction where we're finally starting to understand that we are put in positions of protection and of having to be in charge of protection in order to inform the enterprise uh, and individuals, high net worth individuals, if we are in charge of their protection, we are there to inform them of the risks, okay? Uh, And we are kind of one team, and we have to be very mindful of not crossing the boundary where our client, be it an enterprise or an individual, are now in disagreement with us. They're saying to us, well, wait. You know, I, I don't think the risk is this high. Explain to me why this is. I can't make my decisions. You're stopping my operations. You're infringing on my commercial needs, on my uh, fundamental aspirations, okay? And so you have to be very careful as a practitioner not to do that. Now, the example is a trading desk, a large trading desk in London. And as you, I'm sure, know, both from uh, cinematic experience, but also from real life. Traders are a very peculiar bunch, okay? Uh, Their life moves together with the market. The hours of work are very significant, and the stress levels, at least as I understand, are very high. And actions on the market need to be taken sometimes momentarily. You can't wait. You can't uh, rearrange your schedule, you know, for, for your own benefit. Okay, it has to be it has to fit with when the deal needs to be done, because in a minute or less than that, that deal is going to be gone. Somebody else is going to pick it up. And so we had an exercise where we were conducting an evacuation drill. And again, a lot of enterprises, this is such a trivial thing. Everybody understands that uh, facilities conduct evacuation drills. And here we are discussing 
luckily for us, we were still discussing that this drill was going to take place and how we were going to run it. And uh, we are, you know, talking to individuals who represent this trading operation. And our comment was, well, this is going to happen during a normal work, work day, uh, normal working hours. And uh, we will ask everyone to leave their stations and come down to a specific designated evacuation location. To which the response was, well, that's a no. Uh, we're not coming down. We're not going to align with what you need us to do because we can't miss on our trade. And pretty much pretty much everyone uh, on that floor uh, in that function was aligned with that notion that, no, because you don't evacuate us. What do you mean? We, we, we're we're going to lose millions of dollars if we step away from our terminals. So that is where sometimes you're actions as a practitioner, as an asset protection professional, are incongruent with the actions and needs of your client. And that's a very difficult situation to be in. Uh, and I think that uh, we've been doing much better at, at communicating uh, what our needs are and why we need to do and we need to practice certain uh, techniques of evacuation, certain measures in order to protect the decision makers of the people who are, execute very important functions. But at the same time, we're nowhere close to being congruent with with people uh, that have these spe- specific needs, and that's what happened. You are on the day of that exercise. We're evacuating everybody, and uh, we didn't address. We didn't come to a full agreement with uh, the traders. And what what do you know? They not everybody from their floor decided to leave. You basically had people who were rolling their eyes. And yes, while we could say that uh, most of the evacuation exercise worked out, but it didn't really because uh, we weren't able to reach a a consensus uh, on the importance of this exercise with everyone. And when you have that, right, when you have the weak link, that is extremely important to address because you you may think that you've done 80 or 90% of your job and you've done it successfully, and then you have this function where people are just completely out of alignment with what you need and they don't do what you want them to. And unfortunately, this may lead to a loss of life. This may lead to uh, very significant damage, both reputational and financial, to, to an organization. And uh, believe it or not, this happens with uh, high net worth families as well. What you see sometimes is uh, the level of protection, the level of thinking, the level of vigilance is uh, sometimes non-existent. One of the books that you recommended that I read, it wasn't talking to strangers, but there was another one. It was Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel, Daniel Kahneman. One of the things in that book, it talks about type one and type two of thinking. Yes. There, there are two systems of thinking. Yes. Two systems. It seems like traders would be a little more on instinctive decision-making and, and assessment. Did you take that into consideration? Sadly not. Uh, and this is this was where the failure was, is that we were butting heads instead of taking a step back uh, when we had an opportunity to do that and uh, uh, discuss this as adults, uh, taking the system two approach that Kahneman suggests and uh, saying this is an important thing. We can't use our biases. We can't use our uh, intuition to deal with it because it's something that is not very familiar or well-practiced for, uh, for us. So let's sit down and have a conversation about how we can do this most effectively uh, from the perspective that our job as, as, as professionals in asset protection is to protect your life and protect the rest of the organization from interruptions. And in, as part of that, we have to 
execute certain actions that you currently do not find uh, useful and, and necessary for you or damaging to you? How do we bridge that gap? And we didn't have that conversation. It was a mistake. And I think that this is this still continues. So you still have people in the function of asset protection, of security, as people know it, and functions and other functions in an organization where there's no alignment. The function things know the risk is not that high or the threats are not as serious or uh, whether they even exist is, is questioned. And uh, unfortunately, uh, practitioners uh, sometimes are not able to bridge those gaps even today. And you have proof of that in a variety of recurring incidents. You, I mean, you don't even have to do extensive Google search to understand what's, what's happening with recurring incidents in organizations. It's funny, your dog is barking in the background. I mean, you know, like in the Middle Ages or something, that's how you knew some, that there was danger. I apologize for that. You'll probably hear it for another minute. I apologize. It'll, it'll subside. That's right. I find it kind of reassuring. You got a dog, you got a dog protecting you. All, all this technical stuff we're talking about, you have another means of security. And this is how I started my class when I used to teach at John Jay uh, in a master's degree program. This is how I started my class. I actually went back very far in history and started talking about how castles used to be designed and how animals used to be used for as, as, as real protectors, as real tools in your toolbox, if you will, for preventing an attacker, preventing uh, the threat. Uh, so yeah, for sure. It still is very viable. How are they used differently than they're maybe used now? I mean, dogs just have such a, I mean, there's just so much potential with their intuition and sure. how, how they how they react with the owners. And yeah, I'd be interested. How did you explain that? Well, uh, imagine today that you can have technology, let's say, set up on, uh, so a small bit, bit of technology set up on your door. It uh, alerts you if somebody even touches the door or if they, they're trying to ma- manipulate the door in some, in some way. Uh, or imagine your fence. You could put something on your fence as a sensor. And today the technology just alerts you remotely and it's also, hey, somebody's at your fa- fence. Or uh, imagine ring. Okay, this this very widely used technology. That's uh, that's this this media doorbell, if you will. So yeah. in the medieval times, we didn't invent any of that yet. And so, what did we use for our eyes and ears? We used trained animals to uh, help us, and primarily dogs, uh, because they already proved themselves to be very good at, at, at herding sheep and, and, and herding cattle and uh, and looking after their owners. Their loyalty has always been very very high, and we used them as those sensors, if you will, just just uh, uh, live sensors. And uh, whenever you didn't hear your dog barking, let's say, uh, during certain intervals of time, that could also cause a concern because uh, it shouldn't be so quiet during this time of the day, right? And, um, or or this, this time of night. And uh, that's how they, they were used as part of this uh, elaborate, I must say, system of defenses for uh, fortifications um, and for different uh, townships and villages that didn't have any of, of the modern technology. Was it organized? Was there like a dog, you know, minder or something or a dog's kind of... Uh, sergeant who was controlling others or was, it, or was it just naturally that you know dogs pr- you know protect their owners or that was there a natural system of protection that they would just i think it was it was more natural and i think that uh in some 
cases, I suppose uh, there would have been minders that uh, specifically looked after and trained uh, dogs to, to, to be used specifically for protection. But in most cases, it was simply because of this loyalty that uh, the dogs developed to their owners. And then by extension, their neighbors would rely. If they didn't have one, they would rely on this dog in the same vicinity. And so... I think it developed more as a natural protection measure, uh, but there was very strong reliance on, 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 on use of dog before technology started uh, overtaking that, that, that measure. I'm really enjoying talking about the, the systems approach, the psychological approach, even theoretical approach to you know security of assets with you. So I'm going to jump around a little bit with my questions. One of the things that strikes me is, especially in a post 9-11 time, is how do you work with the difference between people who feel safe and people who are safe. I mean, this seems there's a certain amount of, of uh, communicating that you have to do to tell people that they're safe or to, or to ensure them that they're safe. That doesn't really have anything to do with the processes, the equipment, the personnel, or the physical actions that you've taken. Right. So uh, that's a very, very important question. And I think that we today have not yet developed a viable solution for prevention of what's called false sense of security false sense of protection. There are a lot of things, particularly because of proliferation of technology that people are now taking on board that many in the industry are just, you know, just calling bells and whistles, or they call them blinky lights, or they call them, you know, just a you know, piece of piece of tech or all the security gear. There's a lot of references in the industry to this, to these things. And we still cannot reconcile this, this issue of what is protecting and meeting the objective of protection as designed and what is simply uh, creating false sense of protection. An example I can, I can give you is uh, proliferation of what would, what people know as CCTV. And uh, today, the more appropriate term is video surveillance. And then in the private sector, a lot of organizations of different sizes, I must say, have been implementing these systems. And I, I had a project not so long ago where it was a government facility, but they were expanding their campus and the campus would then entail both uh, a bit of a mixed use operation. So they would have a hotel, they would have a large public plaza, they would have a commercial kind of class A type office building. And then the government facility would be attached to that, to that larger uh, environment. And I think there was this cons- consultation that took place before I started on this job. And uh, one of the takeaways for, from that consultation was, hey, whatever threats we're facing, whatever risks are, that are there, we definitely need to put in a lot of video surveillance, meaning that you, you'd have this location saturated with, with cameras and the, the, with the digital eyes, let's call it. And so I started looking and, you know, one of the questions I had to uh, ask was, okay, so how many cameras do you have today? And they said, okay, well, we have, let's say, for the argument's sake, you know, for, for the story's sake, they said 60. I said, how many people do you have monitoring them? Uh, and they said, well, we have three operators on, on every shift. So I said, okay, so are you, do you know how to prioritize your video surveillance, like views? Because you know, no human or even three humans, they cannot monitor all the 60 cameras at the same time effect- effectively. So you have to prioritize. Uh, and here is where this all went off track. They were introducing probably about two to 300 more cameras. But then when, when we went back and they agreed with me that it was very difficult even today with the 60 cameras to be able to monitor everything. Because like they said, well, with the human eye and the, any human brain only has so much 
capability to process signal and then be intelligent about it, to interpret it, and then act on it, right? Uh, this is where Kahneman's book is, is phenomenal. If you, you can draw a lot of parallels from it. But when I asked them, okay, so you're going to bring an additional two to 300 cameras. How many more people are you going to add to your command and control center in order to monitor those cameras? And that's where we had a moment of silence, okay? There was this long pause, both... A digital pause because I first asked that question via email and then we had a follow-up call where the same pause repeated. They were not planning to actually add more people to this operation. You're threatening their fundamental aspirations to make money. Well, uh, you have to, uh, and we can, we can have separate conversation about commercial aspirations versus uh, reality of protection because that's, that's a separate topic that Many people in the in the industry are, uh, have been raising, and unfortunately, we don't have good answers. We don't have the industry that's actually becoming more ethical uh, in terms of what they sell and for what, how much, how much profit they make versus how how useful the tech is really. And so that was that situation. We I basically questioned their their approach to protecting their 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 campus their facility just by relying on video surveillance and not having sufficient number of people and prioritization of their surveillance to to compensate for that upgrade. And that's a, I apologize that I'm probably taking this in a slightly more technical direction, but this was an amazing example of how, you know, you would think, right, that a government facility would have people who have already asked that question. They already understand that if you add more, and you don't add on the other side from a monitoring perspective, that it just doesn't work. Unfortunately, all those cameras become purely reactive. You can't use that for proactive monitoring. I was, you know, I'm not frequently surprised anymore because I've been in the industry for for quite a few years, but I was was upset. I kind of said, well, you know, you put all your eggs in one basket. You're, you're thinking that all of this will, will, will help you, but how can you justify it if you agree with me that the monitoring will be completely insufficient? So why are you buying all that? It seems like they would want to integrate some kind of artificial intelligence in there to augment it, like motion sensors. And I mean, imagine there's, there must be some artificial intelligence for that kind of surveillance now where, oh, this, this things that look out of place. There's lots and lots. And that's, that's a, a brilliant question because... We did talk about uh, what's called video analytics. This, is, this was one of the technical terms that I, that I used, and it is used in the industry. So when I asked them, I said, well, do you use any video analytics today? What do you think I got? I got another pause. I didn't even get an answer because they didn't know what it was. And so please consider, and this is, this is a huge gap in, in between us and our clients, okay? Those who need to operate what we give them, right? We think that, we as practitioners in the industry, that it's, it's common sense. What do you mean you don't know what video analytics is? What, what do you mean you don't understand how it works? And yet, then you find the client who's like, what do you even mean? What does this, how does this thing work? And how can I be a competent user of that technology? And so this, unfortunately, proliferates throughout our industry. It's that disconnect between what we believe can work and can be very effective, and rightfully so by our standards, and what our users receive and how competent they are in using those those tools. 
And unfortunately, the gap is extremely significant. You mentioned a couple of times that you make a suggestion to someone or you ask a question from someone and there's a pause. And uh, I'm just trying to think like how you would, do you usually know why there's a, why there's a pause? It, it seems from my perspective that somebody who's hiring you as a consultant and there's a pause and you ask them a question, they're immediately thinking, uh-oh, I need this person more than I thought. <laughs> or, this, or, this, or this might be a little bit more work than I'd, than I'd imagined. Do you find that sort of transparent when there's kind of a... Do you know, uh, and again, this is a very interesting psychological question because Sometimes, yes. Sometimes people will, will say, oh, yeah, you know, you, you know what? You just opened my eyes. I, I hear this comment quite often, actually. But I'm sure a lot of my peers do as well. It's, oh, man, you, you, you opened your eyes. However, if you read Kahneman, this sense of overconfidence, thinking fast and slow, right? This sense of overconfidence and this sense of, you know, oh, I can master this easily. Or uh, on the flip side, a person would say, well, I don't even want to talk about it because it's a foreign subject to me. Right, this this denial that this is even a useful conversation, or that I'm putting someone hypothetically in in the corner, or or intellectually I'm putting them in the corner. That sets in as well, because here I am saying you know, I'm questioning, I'm being the skeptic, I'm I'm, I'm using critical thinking, and or, and all of that is being done on behalf of that client, but. Sometimes you get a reaction like, you know what, I got to get somebody who's going to say yes a lot of times to me, to whatever I'm doing, and not bug me, because uh, this is becoming a little bit too complicated. And the complexity is a big issue uh, in our industry. We have overcomplicated a lot of things where right now, if you just listen to the, to the noise of conversations that people are having, there's so much terminology, uh, there's so many acronyms. There's so many, I don't know, exclusive, exclusive language. Even to some practitioners, they're like, what are you talking about? What does this mean? Why are you using this, this term? So the simple language somehow that, that you can use to communicate good ideas and then get agreement from your clients, the simple language is, uh, is difficult to find sometimes. And this is where I had to take a, uh, a step back and reassess how I was consulting many years ago and appreciate the client for who they are rather than trying to draw them into my world. Okay. And uh, because my job is to, to make sure that nothing happens and that they can continue with on their merry way. Right. And I cannot do that. If I start bringing them into this world of, you know, the techie language and these, these uh, very exclusive terms, because they're just dipping their toe in and then they're, they're leaving. They're not interested in, in staying in that world for, uh, for longer than they have my attention uh, or for longer than that I have their attention, right? And that's where a lot of things break down. That's why, to go back to your original question, that's why there's this disparity between what works really well, justifiably, and that can be like vetted and it, you, you can definitely identify that this is a viable solution and the client is happy and where the client has been fed a lot of uh, nonsensical stuff and they believe that they're well protected. I see a lot of clients that believe in their heart that they're well protected and when I evaluate their measures, it is quite pitiful to, to see what they have. Yeah, it's interesting you went to the, the false sense of security. I was th- thinking if there were problems where people actually were safe, where they were just paranoid. I mean, on the other side of the scale, is that, a, is that an issue as well? I must say that 
In my experience in the private sector, in the corporate world, I've had less of that. I've had I've faced far more false sense of security than I have faced uh, paranoia. Um, there have been occasionally some executives that we were working with that wanted more than we thought was necessary, and we were able to have very good discussions. And, and typically, those folks would would be very good partners with us they, because they they kind of had this all this 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 sense that they needed to be protected. So at least you you had something a, a better alignment at the start. Uh, and we could definitely uh, have a very healthy conversation with folks like that and just explain to them why we think that we don't need to scale up to that level that they're asking. For example, I, a group of executives uh, that were traveling into uh, Bangladesh, they turned to me and they said, we want black suburbans, uh, a, a, like a, a row of black suburbans to carry us around the city. And I'm like, well, <laughs> do you know what kind of cars are used in, in Dhaka? Do you, have you ever seen a suburban on the street over there? I mean, you're asking for American protection in a, in a completely different country, I'm not putting you in a suburban. I don't want you to be uh, a bullseye uh, in the city. Uh, and this was uh, in a fairly tumultuous time when they were uh, organizing that trip. And you have to deal with that. They, you know, they, they understood, and I think they went, went along with it. Still begrudgingly, but we, we worked it out. But uh, yeah, you get these requests all the time. Yeah, one of my future guests was a, di- a diplomatic security specialist. They have, obviously, the black you know, the black SUVs for moving people around, but they also have a, (laughs) like a, like a much more kind of clandestine movement. I I mean, imagine they just throw somebody into an old Honda, (laughs) you know, just to kind of not necessarily look like you're, you're not making a big deal about this. You're not making a big, uh, well, consider this for a, for, for a second. I had a a gentleman who was a, a very prominent, let's call him political player. And he was in a predicament where one of his counterparts in, in whatever program they were trying to set up for a specific country, he was assassinated. Okay, and so this gentleman came to me and he started asking me how to protect himself because he still wanted to carry on with setting up that program. And our conversation was exactly about the thing you just mentioned. He started saying to me, because he said, oh, people offered to me like this bulletproof uh, American car. He's like, but, but I understand that if I, if I get into that car, I'm visible more than I want to be. He said, how do I blend in? So we spent two hours talking about, I think there's a, there's a very good writer and uh, he's in the private sector now, but he was with the government. His name is Scott Stewart. Uh, he is with a company called Stratfor, Strategic Forecasting. He, he mentioned, and uh, they're very, very good, him and Fred Burton. And so he mentioned uh, this, this concept of going gray. And uh, I think that this is something that today a lot of protective details don't understand. And it, I'm, I'm surprised that they don't. A lot of them actually do the right thing for their clients. But I still find that there's this VIP I don't know, drive. Everybody wants a black Mercedes. Everybody wants this uh, super protected vehicle, whereas the situation may dictate otherwise. And you have to uh, think about blending in more than you have to think about how do you get an armored vehicle that looks nothing like the, the surrounding environment. Uh, sometimes it's appropriate. I'm not saying that you can't use it, but uh, you just have to be exceptionally careful. It's funny. I, I, it was about 10 years ago. I was reading Gavin DeBecker's books. Yes. Gift of Fear. And uh, a few others. Yeah. And one of the things that he brought up without it, it almost seems, it just seems to me going gray would be 
intuitively the best way to move around. But he brought up in some of his books, I remember, the value of of having a, a security force that is obvious. You're describing a, a very viable solution, uh, but you have to always be mindful of what the fit for purpose is. So what you're describing right. is a situation where, let's say you're protecting a celebrity. There was recently, John Travolta was traveling uh, in Australia and he was, I don't know, either promoting something or he was there for just a bunch of different things that he needed to do or filming, I forget. But uh, he had a very obvious protective detail, okay? And uh, that's by design in many ways. Now, you still can make mistakes um, about pairing that type of obvious overt protection and matching it to the environment. You still can make mistakes. It's, it's, it's undeniable. But it, it's very important to understand what the fit for purpose is. If I'm moving somebody in a city which has a certain vibe to it, I'm going to have to try to figure out how what that vibe is before I decide on what I'm doing, right? And we had a vehicle in one of the cities here in, uh, in Asia where it was, we ended up using the, the vehicle of the local bodyguard. So it was his private vehicle because it fit the purpose better than anything else. Um, it, it really depends but this is where it's very very important to also refer back to psychology sometimes misdirection and sometimes this this art of deception works extremely well in our field okay you can create an environment because keep in mind well kahneman very clearly states that we still operate for let's say 80% of the time on our intuitions on the way we have learned to perceive the world so it's not really actual reality it's how we how we imagine the reality to be and if i am able to misdirect you a little bit like the magician would do on stage i am actually moving you away from my target i'm moving you away from or not my target but my protectee let's say uh from your target i'm, mo- I'm helping you to or i'm nudging you to uh pay attention to something that is immaterial to me and helpful for me but uh, you're still thinking that you're, you're, you're kind of paying attention, right? Uh, and that's how magicians take watches of people's wrists, okay? If you, if you watch those videos, that's actually psychological tricks more than anything else. Just the sleight of hand. Yeah, exactly. But so, so that sleight of hand works very well in our industry. There's actually a, a, a great book. It's, it's, it, sounds, it has a very trivial name. It's called Deception for Dummies. But I think that this is uh, one of the tools in our in our toolbox that we all should be using as professionals. Ironically, I mean, right now we're talking, there's well over 100,000 cases of coronavirus across the world. There's thousands of deaths. Um, the United States has just announced, you know, they've almost doubled the number of cases uh, like in the past week. It's funny, I should have asked this question a little bit sooner, but I think there is a lot of, right now, a lot of false confidence in terms of how protected people are how or how safe they are. I know there's like, this is an obvious analogy to, computer viruses or any other type of security. But I I had an interesting conversation. I don't really know where the question is going, but I just do want to, I want to talk about this and hear your thoughts on it and how that coronavirus has really sort of affected your industry. I mean, one one of the ways is that my, my iPhone doesn't read my, um, doesn't read my face ID when I'm wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. Wow. That must, that must really be hindering this facial recognition stuff. If people are, are, you know, wearing masks, especially in airports. But the other thing I was thinking about was I think that it showed some television footage of people in Clearwater, Florida, just throngs of people on the beach. And maybe last weekend there were, you know, bars were packed in some American cities and 
you know, when interviewed, they were saying, oh, I'm not worried about this. We need to go out and hang out and be together. But I talked to somebody else who was a little bit younger and I said, why are you guys all going out and hanging out? Obviously, this is dangerous. You know, there's a, it's going to be spread. And it's not so much that you're going to get it because people who are in their 30s right now or 20s, they're not quite, they're not quite at the same risk. I said, why are you doing this? You know, and uh, it, because my initial perception was they just didn't care. And she said, something like this happens. People want to be together. They, they want to, they don't want to go and hide socially, move away from each other when there's a crisis. People want to be together to help kind of, you know, soothe each other, get through it. So anyway, I just wanted to know what, what your thoughts were on that. Well, uh, to let's start with your last comment because I think that's it's uh, hugely important as we're all uh, getting into this strange mode of trying to maintain some normalcy but being slightly more isolated or sometimes a lot more isolated from from each other. First and foremost, anthropology tells us that we are social animals. History tells us that we're social animals. The reason why we are uh, we've, we've achieved such progress for our for humanity is through cooperation, through this innate sense of being social with each other. And so as we are isolating ourselves, it doesn't mean we stop all social contact. In fact, I'm seeing wonderful discussions in my industry where where uh, professionals basically are saying if you think that you're like you're feel lost, feel a little bit uh, feel a little bit of anxiety, here I am. You can text me. You can send me a message. I'm, I'm happy to just like just have a friendly professional chat with you, okay? And I'm, I see people coming out and really sharing what I would call bright spots about their ability to have overcome this anxiety of being isolated. I think that that's, that's such a wonderful quality uh, about us as humans is that we, we are extremely, if we, if we think about it, we're extremely industrious uh, creatures. Okay, and we're able to look at the problem in so many different ways if we have a moment to just step up, step back and think, right? If we have the capability, because thinking under duress is where we have problems. You can, you can see that from incident after incident is that if we're panicking, toilet paper goes away. Okay, and, this, and then everybody laughs about it three weeks after and they're saying, how stupid were we, right? And I can tell you, I still have two packs of toilet paper sitting in my apartment that we haven't used just because we saw the panic in Hong Kong uh, three weeks ago, how people were raiding shelves. And we kind of said, well, you know, might as well try to try to go get it. Even though we think of ourselves, my wife and I and our family as being fairly pragmatic and I'm in the industry. Okay. So here you go now. And so these social influences, the, this dynamic of how we interact is extremely important. It cannot disappear. Otherwise, a lot of people are going to go nuts. A lot of people are going to feel this, this onset of depression. And so it's extremely important to find ways to, uh, to continue the social contact. And uh, we're lucky that uh, we can use technology for good in this situation, as long as internet connection is good. But uh, I can tell you that in Hong Kong, very early on, as, thing, as the cases started, the number of cases started growing, uh, the local internet providers proactively reached out to the community and they said, we're upping your bandwidth. We, we just, they, they said, we, you don't have to do anything. We're going to increase the bandwidth. That's it. So then to go back to your previous comment about just in general coronavirus, yes, there's the biggest enemy for us all not just not just 
community, let's say in the States or in specifically where, where you would, where your home base is, for example, my home base, doesn't matter really, right? The biggest enemy is the noise of information. It's just, it, it, we are so reactive to, we're so susceptible to the noise, uh, especially in the last, I want to say, 10 years, that it is, it is hurting our brains. It is, it's, it's really hurtful because when you have such barrage of different source of information, you forget that there's actually only maybe three authoritative channels through which you can get accurate information. And so the, this notion of, remember in the early days, or actually when Trump was running his campaign for, for president, there was the, the, I think Kellyanne Conway used this phrase, alternative facts. Okay, this is where I think uh, this, it's, it's a very huge detriment to, to humans that technology brings so much to the forefront uh, where you just don't know what to believe anymore. Okay, and yet there are very authoritative sources. And uh, I, I've learned the hard way that, uh, and through a lot of training, that you have to look back and you have to say, okay, what kind of capability, what kind of authority does this person have? Does this source have? Are they just a news channel peddling information because it's a headline? Or is this a person who works in the industry or in the government sector that is responsible for addressing the epidemic and a pandemic? The name of uh, Dr. Fauci has been called several times. Uh, Michael, I think he's Michael Hockstrom or Holstrom, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it, but he's a University of Minnesota epidemiologist and a scientist who's been tracking pandemics and, and epidemics for years. These people are, have authority. They understand the science. They understand how viruses spread. They understand both the dangers, but also all the uh, psychological and noise factors that affect humans. And, uh, as you can see, in Hong Kong, panic happened. People went to stores, bought a lot of stuff that they didn't need, that they now don't know what to do with. And you still get over that hump of the panic because you can't live in a sense of panic all the time. Humans are, I, I suspect, and I, I can see from experience, humans get over that initial fear. Uh, and then they start prudently thinking about the situation. And so I think we're dealing with a lot of noise and, and, and this escalation of noise where people become concerned and don't know what authority to look to. But I think that it, it's, it's going to pass. I think that people will, will acquiesce eventually. You mentioned someone calling you just for professional chat. And I thought, because you think of FaceTime, you think, oh, that's, you talk to your family with, or you talk to your very close friends with FaceTime. One of the things I've noticed from doing a podcast is that you can sit down and have a conversation with a complete stranger using technology, sure. which um, I, I think that's one of the changes we might see from the social isolation is people realizing, oh, we can have, they don't have to be family family members. You don't have to be talking about, you know, intensely personal, having intensely personal exchange with somebody. You can have, you know, some conversations with, with, with anybody using this stuff. The noise of information. I, I think people are sort of processing information, not necessarily does it make sense? Just how does this fit into my overall view of, of the world or a particular situation? But I think people ask themselves, how does it feel? Yeah, yeah. it's all about feelings, really. Uh, the, the, our, our system one uh, is primarily oriented around uh, how we feel about certain conditions, not what we think about them, but how we feel about them, how they make us feel. 
and so um, again, this is something that I hope practitioners in my world, in my uh, industry, uh, are starting to realize and recognize when they deal with uh, a variety of humans, be it at an enterprise level or as high net worth clients and so on. I think this sense of feeling is, is extremely important. If you don't understand uh, how to empathize with somebody, and unfortunately, I didn't for a couple of years, but I, I learned. And um, I was interviewing once a, a, a lady who was in a very significant predicament. She, she, she lost her partner to a suicide. Likely her income was being cut off. Her kids, they lived a fairly good lifestyle, but uh, the situation created many, many obstacles. And you could see that my whatever I was, I was interviewing her and asking her fairly kind of mundane technical questions, but what I really should have been doing is to, I, was, I needed to empathize with her and with her situation. So luckily, I was, I was with a colleague who had better sense than I did uh, because I was being very dry and very matter-of-fact, and uh, he was all about feelings. And he reassured her, and I, I was blown away by how that works 100% of the time. It works 100% of the time. That's the, it's, it's just one of those simple truths that we sometimes forget. I imagine what you're talking about is kind of validating someone's feelings or recognizing them or accepting them as opposed to just whatever their message is or whatever their answers are. Well, because it's important to, to understand that first, we are all expressing something that, that we face, something that we are identifying around us and in our, in our environment, in our situation. So uh, it's very, I don't think it's workable to simply uh, apply your own perspective and your own situation and, and that the other person will feel the way you do. Uh, this is where I think it's also this, this art of being a good professional in protecting assets, where you can actually first listen and empathize with what your client is, is how they're feeling, what their concerns are, what kind of what navigates their what what drives their decision making. Okay, uh, and sometimes people, unfortunately, those that are uh, under stress, and particularly in times like these, right? People sometimes lose the the, the ability to zoom out. They don't have this way of uh, just taking a step back and saying, "What's a what's a broader picture here?" They become the wrapped in in this constant. Uh, both paranoia and uh, self-doubt, this fear. And unfortunately, sometimes you, you need somebody else to just take you out of there and just uh, help you process and say, well, did you, have you looked at the wider picture? And, uh, have you thought about what bright spots you have and that, that life is actually not ending, that you have good possibilities uh, if you simply take a step back and just become a bit more calm about what's going on. Just, just unfortunately, right now, uh, country to country with, uh, with the situation, we have a variety of stages. In some countries, people have moved on and they're kind of saying, okay, we, we can deal with this. In some countries, and or some, some regions sometimes in a, in a specific country, people are just freaking out. And um, that's what it is. I was listening to uh, the messaging and uh, the broadcast from New York, where I have a lot of family members and, uh, and friends. And it's pretty much uh, a hodgepodge of opinions and feelings. And uh, not all of it is, uh, is can be validated, but that's, that's kind of how humans operate. You had an interesting article in Medium about having the point of view of uh, Misfit. I mean, you're from Moscow. You came to New York in the, in the early 90s. It seems like... When you're from the point of view of a 
misfit. I mean, for me, I've always looked very American. Wherever I go, <laughs> I sound American. You know, it's never a problem. I, some of my, I probably spent my first five years in my 20s out of college in Germany. So I was in Europe most of the time. Okay. And, but I think it's probably, you were like even more of a, of a misfit coming to the United States. How has that misfit perspective helped you? I'd imagine one of the ways it would be your, you can't really take for granted that people are going to feel the way you feel because obviously you're getting so much visual and oral evidence that things are different <laughs> than what you're used to. But maybe you could just talk about being a misfit and you still kind of describe that as a, you know, kind of an advantage to what you're doing. Well, because it's it's a huge advantage because uh, it, it kind of dawns on you, right, as it did on me, that if you're perceived to be an outsider in certain situations, and I have, and even today I'm, I'm perceived as an outsider, it's simply because I don't hail from uh, law enforcement or military. And so it's extremely difficult for people who come from these domains to look at me and say, oh, yeah, he's competent. He's, he's credible. He knows what he's talking about. So, and I give it to them. I, again, you have to use some empathy to, you know, to, to be kind to others and expect kindness in return. But uh, this myth, misfit sense, I think, helps you take a broader look at a situation and uh, at what you're presented and become, I think, more inquisitive about what the situation is and start asking more and better questions. And this is what I did because when I came, you're absolutely right. I, I, I didn't have knowledge of English. I wasn't a fluent speaker. I came from a very protective, very sheltered uh, upbringing. I wasn't, I don't think I, I was ready to be on my own. And, and that lasted for several years from my arrival. I already an introvert, already feeling like an introvert. So my social contact was, was, was difficult to accomplish. And uh, all of those factors helped me in a way to take a step back and then you know, evaluate, be more scrupulous about both the social situations that I'm, that I'm in or professional situations that I ended up looking at. And also helped me ask this question, okay, so if I'm looking at what I'm what I'm facing, this, let's call it a problem of sorts. How many ways are there to solve it? Okay, not just saying, okay, I've learned from my environment, I, I have this intuition, this is how I'm going to do it. It helped me be more open to listen to others and, and just align what I'm doing with what would be most helpful for, for, for someone I'm, I'm trying to look after, someone I'm trying to help. And that not only because keep in mind, in, in our industry, a lot of advice, a lot of reports end up in, in, in desk drawers. The people, we think that we've done a great job, but then the client completely dismisses it. It's irrelevant to them. It was a tick box exercise. They actually didn't understand it, have no capacity to understand what we said. So there's a lot of that going on still. And so to me, this was always an issue. I, uh, and, and this is, I think that being a misfit, how uh, I, I understood that people were uh, mis had misconceptions about me. They didn't understand where I was. I learned to say to myself that I'm not going to return that favor. I'm going to try to evaluate each situation with uh, with a greater degree of scrutiny, apply a lot of critical thinking. And I think in our industry, when we, uh, like I said, when we're trying to build solutions to address clients' issues, you know, you have to have very wide spectrum thinking. 
you can't just say what I did for last client will work in the case with this client. It just, it actually, it does not work that way because each client is associated with an organization that has a completely different culture. They might be in a, in a completely different financial circumstances than the previous client. They might have completely different existing technologies and, and, and tools that we can leverage uh, or not but then previous engagements. So there's so many differences that uh, we practitioners sometimes dismiss because we are being the man with a hammer and we're, we're to, you know, to us every problem is a nail. Uh, that we sometimes, uh, you know, offer some disservice, just trying to uh, 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 address problems the same way we did before, and it doesn't, unfortunately, doesn't work. So uh, I think that was the biggest lesson for me. Ilya, thanks so much for being on the live drop. My pleasure. That was my conversation with security specialist Ilya Umansky. You can find out uh, more about him on his company homepage, spherestate.com. There's more information in the show notes as well. Stay safe out there and the transmission. Mm-hmm.